we really have to realize how lucky we are to have a democratic systems and that we need to make use of our freedom and exercise our right to vote. Between the 6th and the 9th of June 2024, millions of Europeans will participate in shaping the future of European democracy on the occasion of the European elections. It's a unique moment when people of 28 European countries collectively decide on the future of the European Union. What does it matter from the food movement point of view? The European Parliament will vote about common policies on trade, agriculture, fisheries and regional development. Members of the Parliament will have a decisive word in defining which kind of food systems we will have in the next crucial years, marked by the urgence of a complete change towards a resilient, sustainable, climate and health-friendly food production and consumption. Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tapir. Slow Food, the podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Slow Food, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the beauty and complexity of good, clean and fair food systems. I'm Valentina Gritti, I'm your host and a Slow Food Youth Network activist. On our podcast, we meet changemakers around the world who are working towards a more sustainable food system and promote a slow lifestyle. This episode is part of the series Slow Food Goes Brussels, where we dissect the political debates linked to the greatest challenges food and agriculture are facing. Today, we want to discuss the topic of the upcoming European elections with Madeleine Kost, the Slow Food Advocacy Director, and with Janni Festegaard, Slow Food International Councillor for the Nordic countries. First of all, welcome Madeleine Kost to Slow Food, the podcast. Hi, Valentina. I'm really happy to have you here. Um, maybe we can start this conversation with a bit of introduction from your side. Yes, sure. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me to, to speak. So I'm Madeleine Kost. I am the Director of Advocacy of Slow Food. I've been working in the office uh, in Brussels for the last five years now. And what, what does it mean to work for the advocacy for Slow Food? Basically, for Slow Food, it's very important to work on three pillars of work. Education, biodiversity and advocacy. Advocacy because uh, we realize that despite all of the work uh, and in addition to all of the work that we do at the grassroots level, if we really want to make a transformative change, we also really need to be working on changing the policies that are underpinning our food system. So my role is to kind of structure and organize the slow foods advocacy work that we conduct at the European level, but also at the international and at the local level. Another way that Slow Food likes to do advocacy work is to join mobilizations, for example, at the national, but also in Brussels. And we joined two mobilizations in November, one on the 8th of November and one on the 29th on sustainable food systems and on GMOs, which was the latest one. And the reason why we held them um, in Brussels is because we wanted to be there at the Place de Luxembourg in front of the European Parliament so that 
members of the European Parliament can really hear us and see that civil society and people and citizens really care about these topics. So it was a really exciting mobilization that we had to show that farmers and citizens were against the deregulation of new GMOs. So very interesting. And so you are really updated on what is going on from the advocacy perspective, like uh, around food. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm following it closely. Uh, here in Brussels, we're seeing um, a lot of activity. As always, uh, we have the European elections coming up soon. So there's a really a, a peak of activity at the moment regarding European food policies and agricultural policies. So it's a busy time. And I think it's an important moment to kind of look back at uh, the last year and also the last five years, in fact, of the European cycle and take stock of what has slow food been up to, where have we made an impact, where have we made maybe less of an impact, and also looking to next year, what are going to be the opportunities with the European elections coming up and how can we make slow food's voice heard even louder. Yes, exactly. So this is really what our conversation of today is going to go around. Yeah, and thanks for mentioning also like highlights for the of this year that it's like about to end, but also of the past five years of the this like previous cycle of the European Parliament. So maybe we can start with this year's advocacy highlight, or at least like when it comes to food and agriculture, could you tell us like what are things that we really have to know? Yeah, absolutely. So we were very active this year uh, on a number of, of topics. Our four priority topics were animal welfare, GMOs, pesticides, and sustainable food systems. And we've been really campaigning and advocating on all four of those topics. Um, so this year, particularly, we started off the year very strong because we were um, invited to speak in a hearing of the European Parliament in January on the topic of pesticides. Maybe some of the listeners will remember that um, over the last few years, we had been campaigning on the campaign called Save Bees and Farmers, which was a large European-wide petition. We managed over the years to gain more than a million signatures collected all over Europe, calling for a 80% reduction target on the use of pesticides in the EU, and also for measures to um, help farmers to transition to agroecology. And after we managed to get that million signatures, the outcome was that we were formally invited by the European Parliament in a hearing uh, in January to really present the demands and the arguments of this campaign. So this was a very important moment for, for Slow Food to be visible alongside other civil society organizations. There was also farmers and scientists there, and we really made a case for why we needed European-wide targets on pesticide use. So that, that was a strong start um, in January. And then throughout the year, um, because we knew that uh, the European institutions were discussing indeed a proposal to uh, reduce the use of pesticides by 50%, not 80%, but 50% by 2030. So we had to continue putting pressure. Um, in addition to the ECI, the petition of the last few years, we continued mobilizing this year uh, in our campaign called Say Goodbye to Toxics. And there, I think it was a very interesting campaign because we were really allowing our readers and our network to email their members of the European Parliament directly through our website. They could send an email with a message that was calling on the politicians 
to vote for strong pesticide reduction targets and to help protect both consumers but also farmers. So this was a very nice campaign that we conducted with uh, Friends of the Earth and also with Pan-Europe. And I think we collected over 17,000 emails uh, that were, were sent directly in the mailbox of the European Parliament members. So those were two highlights. Another type of um, advocacy work that we did was just last week, we organized a roundtable discussion on the topic of public procurement, which are the rules on how to decide on what is the type of food that is being served in public canteens, for example, in schools and hospitals and prisons, etc. So Slow Food organizes these roundtable discussions regularly. It's a format where uh, we invite people from the European Commission and the parliaments, also members from our network who are very active on this topic. And we gather them around a table in one of our Slow Food Cooks restaurants, which is what we did also this week. Sounds really nice. <laughs> yes, it's very nice because it's a step outside of the usual, very formal discussions inside the European Commission or the Parliament. Here we're in a nice, cozy, slow food restaurant. And we really, because it's not open to the public, we have everyone really sharing really interesting insights as to what could be the challenges and opportunities of public procurement. And the last uh, two things I, I think were really interesting that we did this year What's amazing with the Slow Food Network is that it's our network who are the experts. And so as often as possible, we bring our network experts to come to Brussels or join online discussions that are happening. So, for example, earlier this year, we had a, a breeder from Tuscany who was involved in a European conference during the EU Green Week on biodiversity. And he was able to talk about the importance of biodiversity in animal breeding and how the European Union should propose more measures to protect biodiversity in food and farming. So this was also you know, a really important opportunity for Slow Foods Voice to, to be heard from practitioners on the ground, not just our team here in Brussels, because we are not really the experts. It's our network who are the experts. Thanks, Madeleine. And um, looking back to this like five years cycle that it's about to end, what would you say that are like the highlights from the European policy and advocacy, especially regarding food and agriculture? Yeah, so um, in 2020, you may remember that the European Commission had proposed the farm to fork strategy. So this was a very exciting opportunity, uh, a very refreshing uh, approach that the European Commission took to propose a strategy that was really looking at the food system as a whole, whereas Slow Food and other groups were really decrying the fact that until then policies had really been made in silos and that uh, food policies were actually really focused only on agriculture. So this was the, the big new approach and strategy Uh, called the Farm to Fork Strategy, and it included many measures that we were lo really looking forward to seeing implementing. And we know that the European Parliament approved of this strategy, they voted in majority really in favor, so this was a really positive signal that we had at the beginning of the, of the mandate. Then, as the years uh, went by, the different elements and components of the Farm to Fork Strategy, which initially were not uh, binding, They were proposed by the European Commission. So, for example, 
Like I mentioned before, they made a proposal on pesticide use. They also made a proposal on food waste. They made a proposal on new GMOs. So over the years, we saw the European Commission make uh, different types of proposals. Some of them were very good, some of them much less good. <laughs> and Slow Food has been following and evaluating and giving inputs where, where we could uh, to voice what we think these different proposals needed to to contain or or on the contrary, what these proposals should avoid. Sorry, just to understand uh, better. So these proposals are made by the commissions for the parliament or they are made for the national governments of the countries in the European Union? How does it work? Yeah, the European Union can sometimes look like a big black box uh, for those who are not based in Brussels. So indeed, the European Commission is the body that makes the proposals and then both the European Parliament, which we elect, for example, next year we will be electing the European Parliament, and the Council of Ministers, which is the council of all of our different agriculture, environment or health ministers from every country. So for example, the Dutch agriculture minister, the Italian agriculture minister, they also all have to vote on these different laws. So it's not just politicians in Brussels who are deciding what is happening. It's really the European Commission makes a proposal and then both the Council of Ministers and the European Parliament have to vote in favor or against, and they also have the power to change the proposals themselves. Okay, thank you. So the European Parliament and the Council indeed had to pronounce themselves on different elements of the farm to fork strategy. So for example, on pesticides, the European Parliament voted just in the last few weeks on this very important file. And unfortunately, despite all of the mobilization of civil society, despite all of the evidence from scientists that we need to reduce the use of pesticides, they really voted against this proposal. They voted against the ambition of the European Commission. And unfortunately, that file is kind of dead. And so it's really difficult <laughs> to hear this uh, and to realize that despite all of the efforts, sometimes these proposals do not get through. But it's also a reminder that uh, we really need to continue putting pressure also on the European Parliament and on our ministers who really have a big say on how European policies are made. This proposal that you mentioned about the pesticides that has been filed, was it the one that you were uh, involved with the uh, campaign that you did in January? Yes, they are not directly linked, but yes, basically our campaign was to push for a strong pesticide reduction target of 80%. The European Commission had made a proposal of 50%, which we considered still quite ambitious. And unfortunately, the European Parliament and the Council are really pushing hard against it the European Parliament has voted against this. So yes, they are directly linked. So sad. Yes. <laughs> and in the next few weeks, we are also going to be hearing from the European Parliament and the Council about new GMOs. So unfortunately, this is a proposal that really worries Slow Food and other civil society organization, because what is on the table is a full deregulation of new GMOs. Sometimes maybe you've heard the term new genomic techniques or new breeding techniques, which is the term used by the industry. But basically these are new techniques, for example, uh, CRISPR-Cas, that can be used to modify uh, and edit the genome of plants to make them uh, have new traits, for example, as promised by the industry, to be more resistant to droughts or to climate change 
or for example, to reduce the use of pesticides. So what is on the table now is to deregulate them fully, uh, meaning that there would be no more safety assessments, no more traceability, and very worryingly, no more labeling of new GMOs for consumers. So we would no longer be able to see and to decide whether we want to eat products obtained from new GMOs or not. So this is the proposal that is on the table. And now we are trying to inform the European Parliament and the Council and trying to put pressure on them to vote against this because it's really a proposal that is going to have really big consequences on consumers, on farmers, on cooks, for example, as well. So this is something that we really need to continue mobilizing also in the different countries. It's not just in Brussels that the pressure has to be put. Hmm. And how could we do like also on an individual level or a community level to support you in this campaign? So there are different petitions that are being run in different countries. You can help by signing those petitions and sharing it. But it's also important to raise awareness. Uh, Slow Food continues to make posts on social media, for example. It's important to raise awareness among different civil society groups or among your friends and your family to alert that this is happening. And whenever you see any opportunity to join any kind of protest or action that might be happening in your country, you can also join those. Because what's important is for the Italian ministry, for example, or the Dutch ministry or the Romanian ministries to hear that their uh, citizens and their voters do not want a full deregulation of GMOs. And, um, and Madeleine, looking at next year, so next year there's going to be the new European Parliament elections. So um, why would you say it's really important to go and vote? Yeah, it's really important that everyone goes and vote and that we also encourage everyone else to go and vote. Sometimes the European elections are a little bit the forgotten elections because we already, you know, we already go and vote for our president. We go to vote in local elections, but it's really important to go and vote in the European elections because like I explained just before, the European Commission makes proposals, but then they have to be adopted uh, or rejected by the European Parliament. And if there is a clear majority of members of the European Parliament that is anti-organic, anti-sustainable food systems, that don't really believe in climate change or that do not care about supporting local farmers, then any good proposal that we may have on the table will get rejected, like a little bit what we saw in the last few months. So that's why it's important to go and vote in the next elections, also because in Europe, we've been seeing over the last years, there is a certain Euroscepticism. And we have also seen elections of parties that are not necessarily in favor of the kind of demands that Slow Food has. So it's really important to mobilize because we do fear that next year, uh, during the European elections, there might be a big wave of um, MEPs that are not in favor of our demands. And the last thing I w wanted to say actually on this is also that We have to realize that in the EU, we're very lucky to have a very democratic system in place. It's not perfect, and there's definitely still problems of corruption, and the power of the lobby is, is definitely there, and it's real. But we really have to realize how lucky we are to have a democratic systems, and that we need to make use of our freedom and exercise our right to vote. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> and Madeleine, do you have any hope 
for for next year, actually for the next cycle of the European Parliament regarding sustainable food systems or not at all? Yeah, definitely. I have hope. I think that if we manage to have the right parliament in place, there's a lot of things that can happen in the next cycle. And I'm saying this because over the last five years, we've seen very interesting discussions that did not used to have place uh, take place in the in the European Union in the past. For the first time, we had this proposal for a sustainable food system uh, approach in the shape of the farm to fork strategy. We had a proposal on a strong pesticide target. Even if they were rejected, they were still opportunities to have big discussions about these very important topics. And these will very surely also remain on the agenda for the next cycle. So we need to uh, continue building pressure over the years and over the cycles to make sure that these topics don't get swept off the table. Let's put it that way. And at the same time, even if the outlook is not so amazing at the EU level as it is looking right now, that doesn't mean that we cannot also uh, be mobilizing at other different levels of government. And Slow Food is doing this We're mobilizing at the local level and also at the national level. And even if the EU is not going in the right direction, that doesn't mean that your local government, your region or your country cannot be taking the right steps in the right direction to really ensure sustainable food systems. They may, uh, for example, ban the use of glyphosate on the territory. They may put in place a great strategy to improve the public health of, uh, of the country. Uh, including through promoting more sustainable and healthy diets. So there's plenty of opportunities as well at the local and the, at the national level. So let's have some hope. And if our listeners want to um, follow your work in a closer way, how can they do that? Yeah, that's a great question. So you can download the next podcast as well and subscribe to our channel. Yeah. We, <laughs> we have a, uh, an active Twitter account as well where we tweet uh, daily about the EU policy developments. And we also have a European advocacy newsletter that you can subscribe to um, on our website. I let all the links to the podcast description so that people don't get lost. And uh, thank you so much, Madeleine. It was a really interesting conversation. And especially you, you talked about all this topic in a very easy way to follow. And as you mentioned before, like for a lot of people, the European Commission and like all these topics around advocacy are like a black box. And I think you, you really managed to share like this highlight and all these uh, steps we could take in a very clear way. So thank you so much for that. And thanks for the important work that you're carrying out. Thanks, Valentina. I do it uh, really because I believe that it's, it's important. And I think it's indeed um, something that we collectively, civil society organizations need to be better at, is really explaining the impact of mobilization, the positive impact that we can have and the negative impacts that come out from a lack of uh, mobilization from civil society. So that's why I think it's really important for anyone involved in the Slow Food Network, not only to be carrying out grassroots initiatives and projects, but also where they can, to also link it to the political discussions that are happening at that moment and to engage in dialogue with policymakers as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Now 
now let's have a talk with Janni Vestergaard. My name is Janni Vestergaard and I'm a Danish woman living in Copenhagen, but I've spent most of my working life in uh, two other uh, Nordic countries, Finland and Sweden. Today I am very honored to be uh, the international counselor for the Nordic countries for slow food. Janni is an expert in food systems and food policy making. With over 25 years of hands-on experience in building innovative ecosystems with small-scale farmers, producers, chefs, public kitchens, local authorities and so on. Jenny owns a PhD in food science and has a counselor she contributes to the global slow food political strategy. Welcome to Slow Food the podcast, Jenny. Thank you. So the current narrative tells us that the Nordic countries are characterized by highly industrialized food production that is increasingly directed toward the adoption of technological solutions and in particular the development of animal industries in Nordic countries from the establishment in the late 19th century to the present day has led to a massive industrial exploitation of animals with consumption practices actually excessive in relation to planetary resources among the most unsustainable on global scale. Do you agree with this description and do you think that the issues related to food will be taken into account by the Nordic countries voters? Wow, that was a lot of uh, or a heavy question I would say to to start with. First of all, we should consider the Nordic countries. They have we are, we have five different countries and um uh, three regions as well. And my favorite topic is actually to talk about the differences between the Nordic countries because everybody thinks it's the same, but Denmark is the only agricultural country of the five Nordic countries. So the other Nordic countries don't have agriculture as their main industry. And that means, of course, the, the Danes have been uh, working since uh, the late 1800 on the cooperative farming uh, with the Lurpak uh, butter and everything, introducing that to England and UK uh, with the bacon and everything after Second World War. So, of course, in that respect, you're right, uh, saying when it comes to Denmark. Uh, when it comes to the other Nordic countries, yes, the food production is also very industrialized, but it's in small scale if you compare it to the rest of Europe. So in a way, uh, I both agree and a bit disagree because you should always see it in the right context. But what food or industrialized food production does to us is that we forget who's producing the food because we don't have the daily contact with the producer, the kids in, in kindergartens, they don't know that the milk comes from a cow and not from a supermarket and so forth. That is the new narrative, I would say, about the Nordic countries that we have forgotten our food culture because of the, the industrialized food production. Of course, one consequence is, uh, especially when it comes to Denmark, is the exploitation of animal welfare. When it comes to the voters, voters, and from what we can see uh, with the governments uh, changing towards, uh, as in most of Europe, maybe I would say, to right-wing uh, policy, There is not so much space for thinking about the food that you put into your mouth or the food that you produce because very much is about migration and um, other kind of global uh, situations um, that specific parties, uh, they address uh, in a very populistic way. But traditionally, I would say that if you ask a Danish person, for instance, about their food, 
they would generally be, be proud of the Danish food production. If you go to the southern part of Sweden, uh, Skåne, the region of Skåne, you will have um, a lot of uh, food enterprises, uh, medium-sized to big uh, industries, global industries, Uh, but you will also have a lot of small-scale farmers. I think uh, when I was working there uh, five years ago, we said that uh, we have 800 small-scale producers, which actually accounts for one-third of all small-scale producers in the whole of Sweden. And this region is one of the, the smallest region geographically or size-wise and also uh, people-wise. So if you go regionally, There is uh, a knowledge and there is uh, anticipation of food is a bit different depending on which region you are situated in. Yeah, actually, I've been to, to Skåne because I was studying in Lund for a while in my master's oh, and then were. we went to the region and I saw actually that there were a lot of initiatives also to connect local farmers with each other and a lot of focus also on uh, organic agriculture and local biodiversity as well, right? I was heading the initiative Taste of Scorna, so we were kind of the platform for connecting uh, the producers with uh, with restaurants and also developing them, you know, like competences and also finding the right market channels and so on. So, And that situation is very much different from what is going on in Denmark. You don't have the same kind of initiatives for small-scale producers. It's popping up here and there, but actually this could if you allow me, lead me to the, the uh, theme of food policies. Mm -hmm. Because in Denmark, even though we are a, an agricultural country, we don't have a food policy. We don't have a national food policy. There are export strategies, but there are no uh, policies uh, addressing directly uh, food production and consumption in Denmark. Mm. Whereas they have that in Finland and in Sweden. Jenny, this year you were really active on a local level for the Good Food, Good Farming campaign. Good Food, Good Farming is a civil society alliance that campaigns for sustainable food and farming across Europe since 2018, and it brings together groups and organizations who are active at a local, national and European level to put pressure on decision makers for a transition of European food and farming policies. Could you tell us about how you mobilized on a local level for this campaign? Yes, yes, for sure. It was a great pleasure to get the or have the opportunity to be farm of the campaign, the Good Food, Good Farming campaign. And we quite quickly decided that, okay, if we're going to be part of this, we want to focus on fishery. Because right now what is going on, and that is the slow food in Denmark I'm talking about, of course, it was a slow food Nordic uh, input, but it was... Um, It was uh, made in Denmark at Torupstrand, which is the only procedure for fishery uh, that we have in Denmark. And they are really struggling. What is a slow food procedure? <laughs> slow food procedure <laughs> is uh, to uh, preserve uh, food culture and also the, co the culture around the food that is produced in that particular place. And in this case, um, It's a coastal fishery, day fishery, that also uh, implies uh, boats are dragged up on the beach every day when they come in and then they pull them out again. So it's a very um, 
local and cultural tradition that has um, its history for centuries, but also uh, nowadays there is only this uh, one professional community left that is doing it. One. Yes, there there are more communities, but they are they are not the professional fishermen. They are only doing it for hobby. So it has been very important to preserve this culture, and around that culture are a lot of people involved. Where where are they exactly? Sorry, like which is the area? It's in the the north um, west part of uh, of Denmark. So it's like a very very rough area. Not many people living there, again, meaning that the community to preserve and save the community and develop it is uh, very crucial to the economy in the area. And the good thing is also that uh, they are young fishermen. Ah, nice. And uh, that is, you know, kind of um, a rarity. (laughs) But back to the Good Food, Good Farming campaign, we thought that it's very important and it is actually quite crucial that they get the support that they can because uh, due to the quota and due to the lack of fish, uh, the trawlers, the bottom trawlers, they get closer and closer to to the shores. So it means that when they trawl, they disrupt the seabed, meaning that you disrupt the ecosystems in the seabed. So all the small organisms cannot be eaten by the bigger ones, that cannot be eaten by the bigger ones, and finally the cod has nothing to live on, or the flatfish. Mm. Uh, but the cut is, is crucial, of course. Um, uh, so that is a kind of catastrophe and it's very difficult for the small scale and coastal fisheries uh, to get their voice heard. The quota is uh, international, so you really need to talk to the Danish government and to persuade them to do something about it, which they have actually done. But then to monitor and uh, that things are not happening again and again and again that's difficult and already it will take years with the damages that has been done during the last year for the seabed to recover but at the good food good farming campaign around the table we had everybody from the fishermen to the scientists to those heading the community and looking into the development issues of the community we had a very a very large scale purchaser that they are cooperating with because they have understood and the guy on the video he says really nicely if there is no fish out there i cannot sell any fish so of course i have to ensure that there is fish and so you created basically the round table for the discussion yes yeah Around the table, we also had the FSK, that is the Association for uh, Sustainable Coastal uh, Fishery. And they were talking about a new label in Denmark, which is the first uh, government um, regulated uh, label on sustainable coastal fishery. Oh, nice. Yeah. Thanks, Janie. We'll definitely put the link of the video that you mentioned mm-hmm. from the Good Food, Good Farming campaign, the one that is explaining uh, also about the campaign, so that if our listeners want to go a bit deeper into the topic, they can they can watch it. Yeah. And thank you so much again for uh, sharing all your knowledge with us. You're so welcome. I know, I know it was um, a quick conversation, but definitely you gave us an idea of uh, the food systems in Denmark, a bit about the Nordic countries and we definitely want to know more (laughs) about it that's good to hear yeah
you so much, Yanni Festergaard and Malen Kost for this podcast conversation. If you want to be updated about current advocacy topics around food, we suggest you follow Slow Food Europe on Twitter. You will find the link in the podcast description. If you like this episode, remember to share it with your friends and to give us a good rating or review on your favorite podcasting platform. Remember, you can always reach out to us via podcast at slowfood.it or in our Telegram group. You can find our group by looking for Slow Food the Podcast on Telegram. In the group, you can comment, discuss topics and share opinions on our podcast episodes. You can also send us audio messages with comments or questions, which we can then reply in the following podcast episodes. This is Valentina Gritti and you have listened to Slow Food, the podcast. Ciao!